that human connection when we're sitting in a room and we're just talking with one another or we're having lunch together and enjoying one another is very much a part of ensuring that those relationships are being developed and that we're having the opportunity to talk about very informally, how do we do better for the communities that we serve? Healthcare is an industry that relies on protocols and for good reason. But there are times when too much rigidity can fail to leave room for the human side of experiences. It often takes courage and courageous individuals who can go beyond the norm and are willing to deviate from the established standards to prove that there are other, better ways to do things. And that's when we get exceptional experiences and ultimately improved human connections. Hi, I'm Rebecca Corin, and I'm excited to welcome you back to Moments Move Us, a people-first podcast unlocking the power of meaningful moments by bringing you stories that inspire. Eric Wexler was only 19 years old when he took a job as a security officer at St. Francis Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut. This was his entry into the healthcare industry, and it's where he learned an invaluable lesson. There's a difference between doing your job and doing your job in a way that truly supports the people you serve. Eric continues to reflect on that lesson years later as the chief operating officer for Providence St. Joseph Health. There, he works hard to champion compassion, human connection, and building relationships. For Eric, these are the keys to creating a culture that provides the best care. And of course, that begins with the understanding that every person has their own unique needs and is going through their own experiences. And on top of that, how we care for ourselves has a direct impact on how we show up and care for others. Let's dive in. It is something that has stayed with me in my heart, mind, and my soul over all of these years. So I was in college in Hartford, Connecticut, and I took a job as a security officer at St. Francis Hospital in Hartford. And it was my first real entry point into healthcare. It's not that I hadn't experienced it before. My mother once broke her hip and I was once in a car accident and I saw what it was like to be on the other side of those things. But being at the front line of healthcare in a way where you're greeting people who are super scared and sometimes their life is at risk, you know, at the front door of an emergency department really impacted me on how important it is to be in healthcare. And whether it was serving in the lobby of the hospital or mostly in the emergency department or on the premises of St. Francis Hospital, I always felt it was a great honor to be a security yes. officer. And that was my entry point. I had many other years between that and eventually becoming the director of philanthropy for a hospital in Waterbury. But that was my entry point. When you think back to like moments you had in that role, you know, does anything ever kind of come back to you, even in your present day, like any of the stories that you experienced sort of there as the face of when people walked in the door or in the emergency department where things can get difficult at times. And then you were talking about the fear kind of allaying that in that role. Do any pieces of that come up? You know, something immediately shot into my mind, and it's actually a moment I'm not proud of. I'm going to just reveal to you. So I was in the lobby of St. Francis Hospital, and, you know, it was a fairly secure facility, and 
those days you had to get a hall pass, right? Uh, it wasn't too technical in those days. And this big man came in and he was rushing to go to the elevators. And as you know, I'm supposed to do, I stopped him and said, you need to stop at the front desk and show them your ID and get a hall pass. And he got very angry and anxious and started to yell at me. And I started to yell back. The situation escalated, escalated a lot in his person. And he wound up pushing me and shoved me through a door and I fell on the ground. And of course, other security officers showed up and the situation got under control. I don't think he was wrong. If you look on that, when all said and done, this was somebody who was really scared, yeah. who needed to be with their family, who wasn't well. And we were worried about a hall pass. And there are good security reasons for this, as we all know. But I was just a kid, you know, I don't know, what was I, 19 years old, maybe 20. I wish I had found a way to say, let me help you. Let's walk together to the room that you need to go to, or let me bring you over to the desk and get you. So, you know, I think immediately what comes back to me is I was the one that was wrong and he was the one that was in a real time of need. Wow. You know, it's interesting to think about stories like that because in the moment you're feeling the energy of that and you had a job to do and you were thinking about safety on the process and what you were there for, you're 19 years old, you're following the rules, right? I mean, that's your job. And kind of looking back, that influences the way that we meet people in their time of need, because people do not always show up at their best. And I'll take it farther. They really, it's very difficult to show up at your best when you're hurting or your loved ones are hurting in the hospital and how such a sensitive, tenuous moment for them. And it's a true responsibility for every person in a health system to be part of the solution, to care for the person in that moment. But how hard is it in a situation like that. I'm just now putting these pieces together while you and I are talking on a decision I made much later in my career. And all of a sudden, I think I understand why I made that decision. So, you know, like years later, now I'm at Waterbury Hospital. I started out as the vice president for development or philanthropy. And eventually I was allowed to expand my responsibility into operations there. And one of the places that reported to me was security. And the director of security is a guy named, I remember this is probably 25 years ago, was Oscar Herrera, an amazing uh, security director and a great colleague. And I still think after all these years, I haven't talked to him in 25 plus years, I think very highly of him. And I remember he and I were talking about how do we change our security force into more of a customer relations group. And one of the things I said I really wanted to do was get them out of uniforms to, you know, a jacket and tie. And I think one of the reasons that I put all the pieces together with a little bit of vulnerability with all of you today was I think I remembered back to the security officer's uniform I was wearing and the big leather belt and the huge flashlight that was like this long on the side of me, which is more like a weapon than it is a flashlight. And realizing that that is not in a hospital setting always the best way to approach people that are very vulnerable. I may have felt that way, not only because I saw it was changing, but also the experience that I had with this great man who was having a very bad day. 
Wow. First of all, I'm honored to be on the sort of the receiving end of hearing you kind of put these pieces together because in life, I feel like so many times we find ourselves in conversations and we're talking about like making change or moving into an innovation sort of mindset to improve things. And all of the little things that happen along the way inform where we are in that moment and our perspective. But it's sometimes hard to recall the specific moments that led up to that. And I feel like this was a real gift. Thank you for sharing it. And you know what, Eric, the other thing is the vulnerability piece that you just mentioned. It's hard to share like when we didn't show up as our best in a moment. Can you talk a little bit about how vulnerability impacts like your leadership style and your work? My colleagues that know me, what you see is what you get. I'm always working on improving myself, always. I've had a coach in the past, a guy named Rich Dougherty, probably one of the most important people in helping me to learn to be a better leader. I've gone through leadership formation at Providence St. Joseph Health. And in all this, one of the things that I have come to feel comfortable with is I will always try to improve myself, but I am who I am. And my mind, body, and spirit is what drives me to make good decisions and support people around me. And sometimes vulnerability is shedding a tear. And sometimes it may be being over passionate, or it could be even dispassionate to be able to help people around you. I think that too many leaders work hard at trying to be somebody other than they are. And it just doesn't come across as being authentic. And then the relationships don't really develop. And so when we talk about vulnerability and leadership, it should be part of the toolbox that's connected to our mind, body, and spirit, not to some fake way of trying to engage with people that they won't believe. I couldn't agree with you more. Were you always like that as a leader? Like, do you remember back to kind of your first leadership roles? Was that something that you felt like you still embodied? Because I'll just be transparent about myself. I tried to fit a mold for a long time and would wear certain clothes, wear my hair a certain way. I mean, it's straight today, but my hair is naturally very curly. Like I wanted to look a certain way. I thought I had to talk a certain way that I couldn't make like, you know, be silly. I'm part of me is like very silly. Like I couldn't make jokes. It was hard for me, but I thought I was fitting into like leadership. And over the years, I realized, I just can't keep doing this. Like, this is not who I am. And I feel fake and I don't want to do this anymore. And then I feel like more and more people have really embraced authentic leadership and it's opened the door and paved the way for people like me to be able to wear my hair curly, make the jokes, be silly, shed a tear if I feel really passionate. And that's been huge for me. What about you? Has this always been just like, I'm Eric, what you see is what you get. You know, I made a lot of mistakes as a young leader that my first executive role at Waterbury Hospital, I think I was 29. And I look back on some of the things that I said and did and I blush. But I think that's okay because, you know, we're all developing as human beings and some people don't wish to improve. And I feel sad because that's part of the joy in life. I think as time has gone on, maybe it's age and professional maturity. I feel more committed to relationships and compassion and understanding. You know, one of the very early mentors I had, Rebecca, was a woman named Lucille Janetka. She actually worked with me at Waterbury Hospital. She was the chief operating officer. She's the one that gave up responsibility when she didn't have to and gave it to me 
to allow myself to advance. She gave me the facilities responsibility. Security was another one. And the CEO there was great about, you know, Lucille doing that, but she became the CEO of a hospital called Midstate Medical Center, part of the Hartford healthcare system. And she brought me over there as the chief operating officer to give me a chance. That was probably one of the biggest changes in my whole career. But part of the experience for me was not just going to be the leader there. One of the areas that I learned the most about from her was compassion. And, you know, how as a nurse, you know, she had been a nurse and she was an incredible strategist, but she taught me about how we compassionately work with our executive teams. And I'm going to give you another icon for me is my boss now, Dr. Rod Hockman, who's the chief executive officer of Providence St. Joseph Health. There's nobody I've ever met in my entire career that does more to inspire his colleagues And as I watch him, I constantly am learning from him. And I've adjusted, even at this point in my career as the COO for Providence, I'm still working to adjust how I do things. And watching Rod and thinking back to Lucille, these are very important mentors. They help form us. Oh, wow. Absolutely. You know, I think, first of all, I thank you so much, Eric, that coming from you, that means so much to me. When you talk about compassion and your mentors, and then I think about the work that you're doing at Providence and with Rod, and you guys have talked very openly about sort of your focus on human connection. And I know that compassion is definitely an underlying sort of value of this. This truly is such a challenging time in healthcare. It is a very tough time. Can you talk about what that means to you and Rod and how you see that really permeating across Providence. I know it already is there, but how are you going to kind of continue your journey to providing outstanding care with compassion that you've been doing in these difficult times? There are a couple of things coming out of COVID that I think we realize. One is we all got a lot more time with family and some of that was incredibly good and a little bit of it made it hard for us. But the good was probably the most special part of it. The other thing that came out of COVID that if we look back now, Zoom and Teams and other virtual settings that we were playing with three or four years ago were not as prolific as they are today. They are very much part of our society. Here we are today, you and I, and hopefully a whole bunch of others listening in and we're doing it over a screen versus doing it in a conference center or an auditorium. This is good from an efficiency perspective because it's allowed us to avoid getting on a plane and flying someplace for an hour or two, increasing our carbon footprint. It's better for the environment for a whole host of things, but it's not good for human connection because a lot of what we're doing today, if you observe what you and I are doing, it's start, stop. I stop, you speak. If you and I were together and we were sitting here in my office or in yours, there'd be a lot of interaction that's happening at the same exact time, which creates a certain connectivity to one another that is largely warm. Sometimes it can be not warm. You know, we've seen anger before produce a lot of interaction at the same time, but it's who we are as humans. What Rod and I and others here at Providence St. Joseph are working on is getting out from behind our screens. That human connection when we're sitting in a room and we're just talking with one another or we're having lunch together and enjoying one another is very much a part 
of ensuring that those relationships are being developed and that we're having the opportunity to talk about very informally, how do we do better for the communities that we serve? It can't just be Rod and I and our executive team running around from community to community that we serve. It's all of our leaders. I'm not a big believer in having a directive on this. And we're seeing companies do that now, maybe for good reason. I am a believer in having a philosophy. Our leaders are entrusted, very, very talented executives. So what we're thinking about is what's our philosophy? How many hours a week should you be out there creating that human connection with our caregivers and also out in our communities with the people that we serve? Definitely. You know, I think about there's a difference between communication and connection. And sometimes I think we get those kind of muddied where it's like, oh, well, we communicated or I asked the question, but there wasn't the connection piece. And I feel like what you're getting at is it's so difficult to form the connection through a screen. Just like you said, it's hard. I mean, it can be done, but it's definitely hard. But when you think about when you ask the question that you want to ask, so let's say like when you are on the floor, when you are rounding, when you are going to all the different geographies that you all serve and you want to know what we can do better, it's really important that there's some buildup to that where it's like you can get to know people and there's that human to human meeting. So there's that trust there because when they answer the question, what they thought in the beginning of maybe answering that question a certain way might end up changing a little because they might kind of put their guard down and think, it might be okay for me to share this now with Eric because I now realize he embodies these values that we talk about. And I feel comfortable sharing that. I thank you for saying that. And I do believe that is the majority of what we have to work at as we continue to readjust ourselves from being locked down. I have to also say, I think there is a way virtually to connect with people that could be utilized as well. And I've been practicing this lately, and it's been a very inspiring opportunity for me. So we have, I don't know, 50 chief executives leading our acute care facilities and hundreds of others that are in our clinics and otherwise. And so every once in a while, an appointment gets canceled and I find I have a half hour, 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And last week, I just identified two or three chief executives of our hospitals that I hadn't talked to or seen in a long time. And I just, through teams, dialed them up. And, you know, you can see the look on the other side of the screen. Like, <laughs> just imagining. They're like, what's happening? Are you okay? What's wrong? What did I do? <laughs> you know, uh, so Christy, who's one of our chief executives, we're so proud of her. She runs our Everett facility. She was one of the people I called last week and she said, I saw your name coming through and I told whoever I was on with that I needed to hang up. Eric was calling. And I said, well, you didn't have to do that. You could have just sent me to voicemail. She said, what's up? Is everything okay? And I said, I just wanted to see how you're doing, you know, just checking in with you. She smiled and we just had a nice 15 minute conversation and I hung up and I felt not only so proud of her and what she's doing there, but I felt good myself. 
Totally. I feel like that back and forth that you get, that almost that energy transfer, you know, I, I love Peloton and there's a Peloton trainer named Robin Arson and she talks about how energy is currency. I couldn't agree more with that. So it's like you had that energy exchange that built up your energy, that built up her energy. And then and also like it allowed you to sort of relax into to a moment of human connection so that your next meeting, you have a sort of refreshed perspective. Yeah. And I think also... It allows us as leaders to support, this goes back to human connection, to support our colleagues. She's got a lot of heavy work and responsibility. And and I said to her, you know, it's going to be okay. This is a marathon and not a sprint. And we are all behind you and supporting you. And I think probably if I were hearing that from Dr. Hockman or the chair of our board, it would make me feel just a little more comfortable that day. And I do. I'm not saying I don't. Of course, but I know what you mean. One of the things that I think a lot about too in that moment is like the out of the blue nature of it. It's like the spontaneity, like we're, we have an agenda. And I was just thinking about this when you were saying about your calendar, right? Your calendar is probably so packed. You don't even have 15 minutes to like take a breath and maybe talk to someone that's not in front of the screen or part of a meeting. And I think that off the cuff conversation, that really builds culture connection and it helps people sustain because a lot of the talk that happened, I think during COVID around sort of what's next and sort of emergent making decisions and breaking down of silos, there's a lot of silver linings that we can kind of continue with that. I think part of it too was just like, we're all in this together and we're going to kind of hold on to each other and we're going to kind of march through this as a group. And there's that like deeper humanity aspect that makes it so much more personal. And that I think is why people want to show up again. Because there's also data like that people stay when they have a best friend at work. That really means something. So it just makes me think about that. Let's go back also to something you said, since I think mentioned to me, we may have other leaders that will listen in on this podcast. You're right. Your schedule, my schedule and their schedule, those who are listening in, it's hellacious, you know, and sometimes meetings are backed up one after the other. And I do think, though, that it's worth taking a step back, all of us. And when we think about human connection and who we are, our own renewal and recovery is extremely critical to how we create human connection. Because if we pound through a day from 7 a.m. until 7 p.m. or later, and we don't have any breaks, we're not going to be there for the most important thing in our lives. That's our family. We're just not going to be able to be fully present for them. That's bad. I'm just going to speak for myself. I do find time for myself. I'm up at 5.30 every morning working out. And when I go to the fitness center, even though I begrudge it, um, I walk there, I think to myself, this is my hour for myself. And I always come out of there feeling better. And then at lunchtime, I take a break. I take a walk. And when I go home and I'm sitting and having dinner with Stephanie, my cell phone is nowhere to be found, which she once taught me by seeing me answering a text and saying very compassionately and lovingly, I'll wait until you're done. I was like, oh my God, what a dunce. And you know, she that said it's, I feel like the way she framed it was perfect. Beautifully, you know, thoughtfully kind. And I realized that that wasn't good. And so I think as leaders, we've got to find that space. I couldn't agree more. And I also feel like there's no way that we can make good decisions when our tanks are empty. 
It's just not possible. And I think a lot about nurses, especially because I worry about nursing where there are caregivers in their work, their caregivers at home. They have a lot of responsibilities every single day that last basically 24 hours a day. So how do they recharge? How do we all recharge? I mean, this affects everyone. And I know that well-being is a major priority for you. I know you've been talking about this too publicly, but I think to hear you say it, how you do it, other people now at Providence and frankly, all of our listeners and beyond it, all the health systems that they're a part of, they will be able to say to themselves, well, if Eric is doing this, I can do this too. And that's when we give permission for people, I think, to take the time that they need to be their best selves when they show up. Well, thanks for trying to give me the credit for that. But here's what it's really all about is us saying to ourselves that, forget about Eric, it's taking personal responsibility to put parameters Mm -hmm. around your own life and commitment in a way that is good for you and your family and your own health. And again, Mm -hmm. I don't know how you get human connection if you are not feeling inspired yourself. And you're right, nurses, doctors, environmental service aides, techs, revenue cycle people, just any job right now, the demand in the labor crisis that we have is creating difficulty in ways that we've never seen in our past. I had a leader say to me, I'm sorry, Eric, she came up to me, she said, I'm sorry, I'm just not gonna be able to find time for myself. And I think your expectation is unfair because what will I do for my colleagues when they need me? And I heard her, I felt sad about that because I said to her, there's gotta be a balance somewhere. And so you may have to sign out to somebody, you know, maybe you pass off the baton and that person passes off the baton to you. I'm a big Sixers fan, Eric. And I don't think you know that about me yet, (laughs) but I'll never forget. There was an absolutely crazy week and I had a game and I was supposed to go to the game and it was a seven o'clock game and I'm like working and I'm just, it's six o'clock. It takes me 40 minutes to get to the stadium. I'm just like, you know what? I have to go to this game. Like I have to. And you know what? Being there for two and a half hours and screaming and standing up and rooting and being like in the community. I felt like a new person when I left that arena. I really did. And we didn't win, to be honest, but it was still a great game. I still was so happy that I went there and, and it really recharged me. And I felt like I was glad that I, I almost gave myself that gift. You know what I'm saying? And, that, and it really, I think it worked. I agree with Stephanie. I love that. That's great. I do want to shift gears. You brought up Stephanie and have had so many meaningful conversations with leaders in healthcare. And I think that one of the things that always strikes me is just the personal nature of our work and how we find ourselves on the other side of the conversation at times. And whether it's ourselves or our loved one, our neighbor, our community member, how everybody is a part of healthcare. This, when I say community, I mean everyone. And so would you share a little bit about your experience and how sort of your personal journey has impacted you as a leader? So I was back at, in Baltimore. I was the CEO of a place called Northwest Hospital, part of LifeBridge Health. And we weren't there that long. And really, Steph hadn't been feeling well. And anyway, she went in for some tests and found out that she had stage four lymphoma. We were kind of kids. We were pretty young. I was 40. She's 
six years younger than me. And so this is kind of a big shock. Here's the thing about what we went through. We learned a lot. And I think obviously when you go through that, she's doing great, doing well, but you do learn a lot about each other. And boy, it brought us even closer than we had ever been. We have the most beautiful marriage ever. But here's the thing that I learned. And I think this goes back to, you know, who we are, all of us, no matter who you are in healthcare, maybe whatever business you're in, your family and you have a chance to experience that. And in healthcare, you kind of don't want to experience it unless you're having a baby or something. Well, you know, Stephanie and I found ourselves on the other side of that. Here's what was ironic. So she got her chemotherapy from my hospital and I sat right next to her, held her hand and kind of endured through everything that she endured through, although she was, you know, suffering obviously much, much more than I was. And it was only like a month or two before that, that me and the executive team, we were at a retreat and we were talking about capital deployment. And one of the things that came up was Ida Samet. She was our, one of our clinical leaders, but you know, Ida, knowing that I'm a fitness freak, she wanted to go on a run with me early in, in the morning before we started the retreat. We were out at this facility and she's probably 20 years older than me. And of course I was like 41 or something. And we went off on this run. And for the entire time, she said, we need to renovate and invest capital in the infusion center. Our cancer patients are coming in there. They're cohorted with wound care patients. It's not the right way to be delivering care for both of those patients and their families. She really made a hard play at it. And I thought, yeah, you know, this makes sense. Our CFO was not as enthusiastic because he was thinking about maybe the numbers. But when all was said and done, we made the call to move forward and do the right thing. Now, who would know, like a month or two later, Stephanie and I were sitting in this setting realizing, oh my God, the decision that this executive team made three weeks ago is so important to us now. We only wish that we were going to be in a different setting than we were in. But I will say Stephanie got the most incredible care, whether it was from the food service person delivering her delicious lunch and just customized for her, or it was the researchers that were working with her, of course. I mean, the team was incredible, but here's what I learned that when I'm sitting here making decisions with a group of people, what we're going to do could be for my most beloved loved one. And so that's the kind of thing you want to keep in your heart and mind as you're doing this work. It's an amazingly powerful story because I think that when we sit and make decisions that affect other people's lives, and I especially think about your situation with Stephanie, it's kind of like every decision we make, we need to think about what if it was my most beloved family member that was experiencing this? Would I want them to experience this? Because if we can approach all of the questions that we face with that attitude, every person is going to be treated the best that they can be. And that is the goal, of course. The Dalai Lama said you should treat everyone like they were your mother. <laughs> and so that, I mean, some people have weird relations with their mothers and that's okay. But I agree with that statement because if you imagine the fallout of decisions and how it impacts people, that's really where the decision, I think, can turn to one that is from a place of compassion, love, and human connection, like you talked about. 
And of course, there's other things at play that go into that decision. But um, it's a gift you don't want to have all the time. You know, you don't want to always be on the other side, but it's also just that perspective you got. And I think that probably others are listening in and saying, well, wait a minute, during these very, very difficult times in healthcare, when we are having to consolidate programs or close programs, how can you connect the dots on that when you're saying you need to be there for your most beloved loved one? And here's what I would say. I want to be there with my very best way of treating and impacting that patient and their family. That doesn't mean that we have to be all things to all people because, you know, God forbid Stephanie or I or any of us got sick. I want for that person to get the best of care wherever that is delivered. And it's not always going to be within my own healthcare system. I also think about how that impacts how we show up, like from a a person to person perspective. Like I think about joy in the workplace and especially for our frontline healthcare workers, you know, like when they show up and they connect with one person at the bedside, how that's not just living in that one interaction, the ripple effect that that interaction has between that nurse, that patient, then that patient's family, that patient and everyone else with that they're going to meet, which they're going to meet so many people within their healthcare experience, that nurse with her team members, her family, the community, it gives you so much more respect for the moments we share together and how important they are. Yes. And that goes back to human connection. And I see it as a movement of sorts. And to be able to create joy in the workplace or even outside of the workplace, but let's just focus on the workplace. It means that we've got to be able to have that eye to eye contact, to smile at one another. And I try whenever I start a meeting on Teams to start with, hey, how was your weekend? Just kind of warm up the discussion a little bit so that it isn't really just this feeling of 2D and marching right into it when we can't be in the same room together and try to get some joy, even virtually, when we do that. But I think so much joy was tamped down during the pandemic. Family members were getting sick, some passed away. Others who needed care didn't get care. Uh, We were all working really hard. People were scared, some weren't getting paid. Society, I think there was a lot about our society that became more apparent that I will speak for myself, but many of us are very disappointed about the discrimination, the lack of embracing different cultures. What's happened? Martin Luther King was probably, I would say, one of the most beautiful people that ever set foot on this earth. And here we are almost 60 years later, and not much has changed. And so I think that has gone into people's frustration and disappointment and has created fear out there. And we've got to all take action. Enough of hope. Like I believe in hope. I love hope. Hope alone will not get us to change our society. And then we will not have joy. Yes. A million times, yes. And I feel like acknowledging when things are bad in the community, when there's a murder, when the culture of the American people when there's something that is not right and it happens, when we go into work, we can't pretend nothing happened. We have to acknowledge that. We have to open the door to have those conversations because exactly what you said, if I just hope everything's going to be okay, literally it will be the exact same thing that forever. 
So that I think is a wonderful call to action, Eric. And it, it connects with what you're talking about generally with compassion and human connection and how that really needs to be the priority for us. And if we don't acknowledge what's going on in the milieu, it's like we're not going to have the ability to have those compassionate, trusting, authentic conversations to actually problem solve and make things better. So Eric, we've talked about so many things today. Was there anything else that you wanted to share on Moments Move Us? Well, I think you mentioned culture and I love that you talked about culture because I think culture, as I was alluding to in a couple comments I made, culture is part of our diversity. And, you know, I'd like to think of diversity as cultures to learn from. And I think that as organizations work on culture, some will say, well, we're going to have cultural change and it's going to take years to have that change. Well, that may be true. I think part of culture is respecting the culture that exists, bad culture you want to change. But we believe in our organization that we should not homogenize the culture around us. And that facilities and caregivers in Texas and New Mexico or in Eureka, California, or in Alaska, here in the Puget Sound, in Montana, and in all these places, there's a beautiful culture that we should embrace and respect while we also try to bring forth our core values in our organization and who we are. And I think if we do that, when people don't feel like they're being forced and try to make everything equal, homogenized in a way that doesn't allow us to be a little bit different as human beings, we probably will have more embracing of diversity, equity, and inclusion. We'll certainly get progress on health equity, which has been a major area of discrimination in our country. While I have this moment with you and your listeners, you know, I really want to encourage us to love culture and to enhance culture and not try to homogenize culture. I'm so happy you brought this up because I think the organizations are really trying to figure out how they can improve retention and recruitment in their organizations. It is absolutely the top priority across health systems in America today, right? We have this major challenge. We have to figure out how to do it. One of the most crucial elements is what is my culture today? And is this what I want it to be? Because culture sets the direction and people are the fuel. Engaged employees are the fuel to actually make that happen. That's a Brene Brown quote. I didn't come up with that. And I feel strongly about what you're saying because when you think about the culture, the culture is informed by the values, which are so important and people walking the walk. But when you get down to like even the unit level, the more micro levels, there are unique cultures across our organizations. It's about how do we have this collective community where people can be their authentic self, show up uniquely and be a part of this, belong here. That's the culture. The culture is we encourage you to be yourself and that when you come here, you fit in. You're part of this. Whether you agree with what's being talked about in that moment or not, you share your opinion. Why not? And we respect that and value it and love it. Just like you said, loving culture, not homogenized. I absolutely love that. Culture should not be homogenized. Couldn't agree more. I think that you described that beautifully. And I think also, Rebecca, the more that I think part of the reason why around the world, there's discrimination and war and is related a lot to insecurity and people's, let's face it, own internal fears. 
And the more you fight against those and you look for love and embracing, the more that just disappears. And then you wind up being a happier person. It takes courage to deviate from established standards and prove that there are, in fact, better ways of doing things. Those new ways allow us to unlock the potential for truly exceptional, personalized, humane care. I'm Rebecca Corin. Thanks for listening to Moments Move Us. Remember, when you put people first, your actions can move others in unexpected ways. Be sure to follow wherever you get your audio.